You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for today. We pray, Lord, that you would give a double encouragement to our moms. Allow them to feel your presence, to experience your peace and your joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for also our sons and daughters and our fathers who can celebrate with our moms. And we pray, Lord, that that would be something that would happen today or this week. Father, we also turn our attention to sad things, too. The shootings that have been happening uh, at various times in these past two weeks. We ask, Father God, for the soul of our nation. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would change the hearts of the people so that instead of being people who want to be violent or to show off, that we would be people at peace. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, for everyone holding a gun, everyone who has a gun, everyone thinking about getting a gun, that you would change their hearts, Lord. Help them, Father, to use it for self-defense and not for any type of aggression. Lord, we pray for revival for our nation and revival for our church. May your Holy Spirit change us as we go through the story, as we learn lessons from your word. And we pray, Father, that it would not be a change that comes just psychologically, but a change that comes from your Holy Spirit changing us inside out, influencing us through the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than even a two-edged sword, able to tear asunder soul and spirit and show the true thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thank you, Lord. Bless us, Lord, as we continue with reading your word and going through the story as we talk more about Paul's missions journeys. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, everyone. Before we uh, go into the message content of the sermon, uh, like what we usually do, we're going to watch a little video. So let's put that video up.
Amen. Well, we're going to be continuing on with the life of Paul and his mission's journeys, but this time we're going to be talking about the letters he wrote, specifically three very important letters that he wrote. Well, let's first talk about Paul. Who was he? The Apostle Paul was a great missionary, he was a church planner, and he was an inspired letter writer. God used him to write more than a dozen books that form the corpus of the New Testament. In his three missionary journeys spanning decades, Paul wrote many letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Because the Apostle Peter wrote in his letter, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter says that Paul also writes with the wisdom of God, and also he puts the categories of Paul's letters with also other scriptures. So this is where many New Testament scholars, and we can draw from the fact that Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he wasn't just doing his writings from his own will, but it was the Spirit of God that was working him as he wrote these letters, and then these letters were disseminated to various different Christian churches to reach out to the Christians. Now, three of them were particularly important and very, very popular and influential, and that is the letters of 1 Corinthians, the letter of Galatians, and also the letter of Romans. Now, if you ever wondered why they're titled this way, is because each of the letters are titled to the specific people, Christian church, or place that he's trying to reach out to. And so, for example, 1 Corinthians would be a letter to the Christian church in the city of Corinth, which is in Greece. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Galatians, well, what is that? Why is it called Galatians? Because it was a letter written to the different Christians and churches in the province of Galatia in the middle of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, which we find out in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. So each letter would contain instructions, encouragement, spiritual encouragement for that church or that group of churches for the Christian there. And often it would answer specific issues that Paul knew those churches were going through. And because he had the title and the position of apostle, he can do this to large swaths of Christian areas. And so here's a content and summary of these books. First Corinthians, you have Paul giving an encouragement to have unity amongst those who are discipled and their different leaders. This is where he says, you know, some of you are divided. You say you're of Peter, that you're of Apollos, you're of Paul. Some of you say you're of Christ. Why are we so divided? We are all one under Christ. We're all one body in Christ. Although maybe different people have discipled us, we are all one under Christ. Now, a lot of people think that this is a slight to denominationalism. In fact, it's not a slight to denominationalism at all. What it is, it's a rebuke for people who are wanting to be competitive or they're envious that someone was discipled under Paul rather than under someone else. So you have people who are discipled under Paul, and they are really pompous about it, and they're saying, hey, look, I'm discipled under Paul. You should listen to me. And others say, I'm not discipled under any apostle. I'm discipled under Jesus himself. I was there when Jesus walked. I was part of the 70 who followed the 12 who followed Jesus. So 
I learned from Jesus himself. I don't need to listen to any of you apostles. And here Paul comes down and says, no, 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 you guys are all one in Christ. Listen to one another. So if you come from various denominations, don't be pompous about it. Don't be prideful about it. But realize that whoever you learn under, you are all one in Christ, and you learned under people who were also trained in the tutelage of Jesus Christ. He gives then advice to not fellowship with Christians who are in active sin in order to shame them to change. He commands to avoid sexual immorality and idolatry. He encourages to appreciation and use of all of our spiritual gifts to help grow the church. He tells us to view love as greater than any spiritual gift and to focus on that. He wants us to remember, or he wants them, the Corinthians, to remember the simple gospel message of Christ dying for our sin and resurrecting from the dead. Now, although when you read that in 1 Corinthians 15, it seems like, oh, well, that's really easy to understand. That's great. But what is significant about that, and I've mentioned this before, is that the source of where Paul gets 1 Corinthians 15, this simple gospel message of Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead, is a source that's dated between 35 to 40 A.D. That's just two to seven years after Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And the reason why that's significant is because many people think that, oh, Jesus, the whole story of Jesus' supernatural abilities, being able to forgive sin, no one can do that. Being able to rise from the dead, no one can do that. Those are things that the church added on hundreds of years later, or people then deified Jesus Christ in order so that more people can follow him. But in reality, all the way in the beginning, he was just a good teacher. And he taught to love one another. He taught to forgive each other when you're offended. He taught to give to the poor. He was a social Jesus. He wasn't a spiritual Jesus. And yes, when we read in the Bible, he is a very social Jesus. But we know that he's also a very spiritual Jesus. He truly is the God-man because there was no time between him being just a social Jesus to then being the deified Jesus. The idea of him dying for our sin and rising from the dead was something that we already see within just two years of Jesus' ascension. And so we see that there's not a lot of evidence that Jesus was deified later, but he truly was the God-man ever since the beginning. Um, Paul also tells us to truly lift up the major importance of Christ's resurrection. And it is very important because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no such thing as eternal life. There is no such thing as you being forgiven of your sins. There is no such thing as there's a kingdom of God and it's coming because Jesus is going to come back again. How can he come back? He's still down there, <laughs> right? How can he forgive us of our sins? He died in his own sins. He never resurrected. And so our entire Christianity would be a sham if Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead. And Jesus truly would be no better than just any nice humanistic social teacher out there. And at the end, Paul instructs the Corinthians to remember that Jesus is coming back soon. Now, what about Galatians? What is Galatians about? What are the main contents of Galatians? Well, Paul starts off by saying that he is very surprised 
that the Galatian Christians have believed in another gospel. They had the original gospel preached to them, and now they're believing in a false gospel. And what is this false gospel? Well, he explained to them, he explains to them that there is a futility of going back to works of the law instead of remaining in Christ's grace. So what happened was that the Galatian church was influenced and infiltrated by this group called the, the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers did was that they went to the Galatians church, churches and told them, those of you that aren't Jewish and became a Christian without being Jew- Jewish, that's wrong. That's the wrong order. You need to become Jewish first. So you need to be circumcised. You need to learn Torah. You need to learn how to celebrate all of our religious festivals. And then, only after that, can you believe Jesus and be baptized, or else you're not going to be saved. So you're not going to be saved until you master doing the works of the law first. And Paul calls that foolish. He goes, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to believe in this falsehood? You already knew that the law or good works can't save you. Only Christ can save you. Faith in Christ's grace, what he did on the cross. Why are you now going back to good works to try to save yourself and assure yourself of salvation? So that's what I mean when I write, explain the futility of going back to works of the law instead of remaining in Christ's grace. Also, this is where he says there is now no, no male or female slave or free, uh, different races. All can now be one in Christ Jesus. He encourages us to take joy, or encourages the Galatians to take joy that now all classes, races, and sexes can be saved by Christ immediately. You don't have to become a Jew first. As a Gentile, non-Jew, you can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved immediately. All classes. Because back then, you were considered more spiritual and closer to God if you were rich. Because only the people who are rich are blessed by God. The people who are poor are not blessed by God. All races, not just the Jews as the chosen people, but anyone could become now the chosen people if they believe in Christ. And all sexes, because God back then, it was thought, preferred the male over the female. doesn't matter whether you're a female or a male, you can be one in Christ and immediately without becoming a Jew first. Take joy in that. These are the things that we take for granted because most of us are Chinese, Caucasian, right? We don't have to work through these issues because we were taught the gospel properly and we can take joy in that. Then he encourages to avoid living by the sinful nature and instead live by the Holy Spirit. Now, how about the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans? If you want to read one work, which is the magnus opus of the Apostle Paul, it would be the book of Romans. If you've never read anything beyond the Gospels or anything beyond Acts and want to read one work that is the greatest work of Paul that signifies what he's all about, read the book of Romans because this is his masterpiece. And this is what has gotten people saved even without reading the Bible because what Paul wrote, of course, was the Bible, right? He was inspired to write this. So even without reading other books, people have read Romans or commentaries about Romans, and they were just cut to the ground, humbled themselves before God, and believed in God through Jesus Christ. But here are the contents of Romans. First of all, he reflects that the gospel's power can save anyone. Again, why is that? Of course, right? We say of course. 
Well, because back then, the majority of the Jews back then thought that the gospel was only for the Jews. So it can save both Jews and Gentiles. Even the Romans can be saved. Then he explains the inability of the law to save anyone, meaning that good works that you can do according to the law can't save you. Instead, Paul explains that if it can't save you, then what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to reveal your imperfections, to reveal how imperfect you are before God. And then he points to the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, how were people cleansed from their sins? Was it by doing all the Ten Commandments perfectly? No. People were cleansed from their sins by the sacrificial system. So they would have to bring a young male lamb who was without blemish, without any, any type of stain on the outside. And that lamb, that male lamb, that ram would be sacrificed on their behalf so that they can then remain clean. So even when you look back in the Old Testament, the law never saved the Jews back in the Old Testament. It was in spite of the law that they were saved. Now, of course, they were encouraged to keep the law because great judgment would come if you didn't keep the law, and great blessings would be there if you kept the Ten Commandments, just like it is back then, just like it is today. But salvation did not depend on the law. The law showed where you were imperfect. Salvation depended on faith in God through the sacrificial system. And then he teaches about the effectiveness of, of the sacrificial atonement of Christ, that now Jesus Christ became that young male lamb who was sacrificed for our sins because the law reveals how imperfect and sinful we are, and it teaches us and guides us towards Jesus Christ in order to be justified by Christ's work on the cross, to not trust in the law, but trust in Christ's work for our salvation. He continues to explain why there is no condemnation and wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. He continues to remind that God's love for us is everywhere and greater than anything on earth. That's the part where you read neither height nor death, angels or demons can take you away from God's love. Um, He shares that the purpose of being saved from sin is to live for righteousness, and that is the righteousness of Christ. Because even he saw back then, as we do today, people becoming saved, and then they consider their Christianity just purely fire insurance, hell insurance, that now I have insurance from hell, and so if I sin, it's okay, because God will forgive me. And then he tells us, no, there was a purpose for your salvation. You are not saved from sin to sin more. You are saved from sin to now do God's righteousness, to actually sin less. Then he instructs the believers to use all of their spiritual gifts to grow in the body of Christ. He encourages also prayer for all believers around the known world at that time. Now, there's a lot of things. Or we like to read the Gospels, but we don't like to read Romans because Romans is a little too heady, right? But if you take the time to read through Romans slowly, it will assure you of the salvation that you believe in, right? Now, the popular idea of Christianity, which many times even Christians adopt, is that it's a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? Don't sin, instead serve God. Follow the Ten Commandments. 
that's Christianity, right? Well, that's a, a small part of Christianity, but that's the popular idea. Others fall prey to thinking Christianity is aligned with a particular party, usually Republican, right? Still, others are hung up over doctrines they think they need to believe in or do before they become a Christian, right? Haven't you ever uh, faced this when you share the gospel or even before you became a Christian? Or maybe you're not a Christian right now. It's preventing you from becoming a Christian. You think, oh, well, I need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. I don't want to get baptized get in front of everyone, and then have someone dunk me in the water? That sounds weird. I don't want to do that, right? Or maybe you think before you become a Christian, you have to give up alcohol. You know, I'm a wine enthusiast. I like going to, to, to different areas in California, to Napa, and, and, and trying out wine, right? I can't give that up. Or you, you need to become a young earth creationist. I believe in evolution. Uh, and so I can't become a Christian because I'm not going to become one of those young earthers, Right? Or you have to hate homosexuals, right? Homosexuality, oh, man, you know. But, you know, I have friends that are, that are homosexuals. I might be a homosexual, right? Like, so how can, I be, how can I become a Christian? Or you need to deny climate change, right? There's no, no climate change. Now, you may laugh, but there are the, the majority of people who are denying global warming and climate change comes from the Christian right, right? There's a whole swath of the Midwest that are climate change deniers, and most of them are Christians, right? Um, so, and so because of that, because it's so popular amongst conservative fundamentalists, Christians, to deny climate change, people who are non-Christians catch that and go, do I have to deny climate change? I don't want to deny climate change. I believe, I believe in global warming. You know, we should do something about it. I don't want to all of a sudden contribute to climate change by denying it, right? Well, the commonality of all of these is that the person is conflating all possible or wrong beliefs of Christianity as primary rather than separating them into what is, number one, essential for salvation, number two, essential for orthodoxy, and number three, what is secondary and debatable. Okay? Not all doctrines and practices of Christianity are equal. The idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sin is much more primary than what our view of abortion is. Okay? That might surprise you because, oh, wait, abortion is life and death. Yeah, but whether you believe in Jesus Christ that he died on your sin, that's heaven or hell. Okay? And so not all beliefs and thoughts and practices of varying Christians are equal. There are things that are essential for salvation there are things that are essential for orthodoxy. And last but not least, there are things that are secondary and debatable. And I'm not just telling you this because this is Pastor Peter's opinion. The Bible reveals this. The Bible reveals this. When the Bible says this is the gospel, does it talk about gays and lesbians? Does it talk about evolution? Does it talk about all these other things? Your view of uh, building the wall, right? Like, does... What, 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 what does this say, right? Well, this is what the gospel is. Note these passages from Paul's inspired letters. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to twelve. 
That's the gospel, right? That's the simple gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, quote-unquote, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So you're not saved or made right before God by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. It's not about your, how good your good works are. It's not about making sure you have more good works than bad works right before the point of death. It's not about good works at all. It's not about the law. It's all about Christ's work and what he did for you. So how do you know if you're really a Christian and what do you have to do? Well, number one, if you have placed your faith and belief in Jesus Christ as the person who has died on the cross. Number two, that he did this to have your sins forgiven. Number three, that he was buried and rose back to life on the third day by God's power. And number four, and appeared to his closest disciples to prove it, then you're justified before God and are really a Christian. This is what is essential for salvation, all right? So if you truly believe this, then you are saved because that is the gospel in summary. Now, this means that you can be a Democrat or a libertarian and become a Christian. Okay, I had a friend who is now a missionary in Taiwan, but when she was younger, she could not stand our pastor's messages because it sounded so Republican. And so he, she decided, after hearing a pro-life sermon, to then reject Christianity and leave it. And it wasn't until later that I realized one of the reasons why she, was, she found it so sensitive, that message, because she herself had had an abortion before, and so she couldn't take it, right? But even if you're a Democrat or Libertarian, you can become a Christian. Even if you're not pro-life, you can become a Christian. Think about it this way. Did the gospel message care if you were a Herodian or if you were a Pharisee? Right? Oh, you're, oh, you're a Pharisee? Oh, you can't become a Christian then. Right? You need to renounce your Pharisee. You need to renounce being a Sadducee. You need to renounce being a Roman soldier. And then you doesn't talk about that at all. doesn't talk about that at all. You don't have to be a creationist to become a Christian, right? Where in the gospel does it mention any prerequisites for your thoughts about Darwin or your thoughts about Isaac Newton? You don't have to be a creationist to become a Christian. You can be gay and become a Christian, right? The, go- the gospel doesn't have a requirement of sexual orientation. It's not like, oh, hey, you're gay? You're lesbian? Okay, let me know when you don't have any more desires for the same sex and you have a desire for the opposite sex. Then I'll share the gospel again with you and you can be saved. No, you don't have to be gay. Where in the Bible does it, does it say that? Right? Now, the parallel to being gay back then in the New Testament was being polygamous. Because back then they weren't struggling with the whole gay issue, but they were struggling with polygamy. Like, when you're a Christian, what do you do with polygamy, right? And as a result of Christianity spreading around the world, that polygamous cultures became non-polygamous and became monogamous. But even people who are polygamous, they can become Christians. Even people who own slaves, 
could become Christians, right? That's a big issue these days. You believe in slavery? You can't be a real Christian. Back then, there are people in the Bible who own slaves. Solomon has slaves. David has slaves. In the, in the New Testament, you have Paul writing to someone who owned a slave, right? So you can become a Christian as long as you believe in the gospel message. These political, theological, and social issues above are all secondary issues as a part of Christian discipleship and spiritual growth, not salvation, right? Now, should you continue to believe in slavery? Should you continue to believe that the gay lifestyle is correct? All of these things, well, that's a matter of the discipleship. And yes, sometimes there will be changes as a result of you growing deeper in Christ and understanding what the Christian worldview is and what the biblical worldview is. And then changes will have to be made. And those changes will happen because as the Holy Spirit works in you, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. But salvation is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, a second thing that I hear a lot of times that Paul's letters deals directly with is this. I still struggle with sin after I place my faith in Christ. Maybe I'm not really saved. I need to work harder for God to make sure I'm saved. Most of the time, people will never say, oh, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm saved because I still struggle with sin. Uh, so I'll work less for Jesus to assure me of myself. It's always I work harder. Working harder and doing more good works, according to many people, if they're struggling with their salvation, will make them more saved and make them saved again. Okay? And this is one of the most pernicious errors that new believers fall into. We can become Christians. We assume all of our sinful desires will go away. And God will take away all temptation. Now, the Bible doesn't say that that'll happen, but we assume that. Okay? Now, sometimes he does, but at most, in part. I have friends who used to be addicted to drugs. They became Christians. They had born-again experience. All of a sudden, they weren't addicted to heroin anymore. And you know how heroin is addictive? Heroin is very addictive. All of a sudden, they were freed from that. And you're like, wow, why doesn't God do that for me? I'm addicted to heroin, too. Right? Well, we don't, we don't know. It's, that's up to God. That's not up to, to us. And that guy who was freed from heroin still struggled with other sins, even though I don't struggle with those other sins. What's going on there? Right? But I think that there is this false assumption that God will take away all sinful desires and all temptation, which God never promised that he would do. And remember, one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer is, lead us not into temptation, meaning that there will be temptation. But we have to remember, what is the basic gospel? What are the promise of the gospel? Is it a gospel that takes the presence of sin away? Or is it a gospel that takes the penalty of sin away? That's two very different things. And ironically, one of the proofs, one of the proofs of your newfound salvation, namely being born again, is that your struggle with your sinful desires will intensify. It's going to get worse. Because before you didn't care about these things, now you have a new heart in you, a new spirit with you, and it's vying with your old self. You can work harder for God if you want, but your struggle with sin has nothing to do with your standing with God 
namely being saved. This is so important. For some reason, we equate, I'm struggling with sin and my desire for God and this other, other sinful thing I'm struggling with. And then we equate that with, therefore, I'm not truly saved. When the Bible actually says, that's what's going to happen, and that is a proof of your salvation. Remember, if you are a professional tennis player, Christian, you have to train and compete. And because you're a professional tennis player, your opponents will intentionally come to challenge you. Sinful desires, the world, Satan, anyone who's not Michael Chang, okay? It's when you weren't a professional tennis player, non-Christian, you could take it easy and your opponents may not even bother with you because you're already dead to sin. You're not a competition. They don't have to think about you because you're already dead, right? Now, note these scriptures from Paul's letters. Galatians 5, 16 to 17. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul needs to command us to live by the Spirit, meaning we don't have to, okay? For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. They are in a struggle with each other so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 3, 1 to 3. This is the verse that I was mentioning. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Okay, this is where Paul gets a little testy. All right, let let me ask you a question. You answer me this, okay? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, good works, or by believing in what you heard, faith in Christ? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, faith in Christ, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort, good works? So we're going to point this out later, but what he's trying to say is that, look, you got saved not because of good works. You got saved because you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now you're struggling with sin, and you don't, you're not sure of your salvation. And so instead of remaining in Christ, you go back to that which couldn't save you in the first place? How, how does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense. Remain in Christ. Don't go back to try to work harder in your good works because that already, you already knew before you became a Christian that that's not going to save you. So you still struggle with sin after you placed your faith in Christ? What should you make of this? Well, don't fret. You're normal. The conflict you feel is proof, a proof of your salvation, not proof of being unsaved. You should continue to work hard spiritually. No one's saying you shouldn't work hard. You know, you you should sacrifice, you should do good works for the Lord. Because, not to be saved, but because you are already saved. But to grow in Christ and be a Christian blessing to those around you. As Paul summarized in Galatians, if you can't save yourself by good works in the first place... How can more good works assure your salvation in the second place? Okay, remember, good works was the problem in the beginning. Why are you going back to it? Right? That doesn't make any sense. Just replace your faith in Christ and trust in Christ and what he did for you on the cross for your salvation. 
It's all believing what Christ did, not what you do. Okay? Now, here's a helpful chart to help you to understand um, what to expect in this world uh, in the various timelines that you're going to be. So before salvation, before you believe in Jesus, you're under the penalty of sin, you're under the power of sin, you're under the presence of sin. Okay? You're not in a good place. Okay, there are three things against you. You're under the penalties of sin, you're under the power of sin, and you're under the presence of sin. After you become a Christian, after you're saved, you place your faith in Christ, you are free from the penalty of sin, right? He took the penalty for you. Now the Holy Spirit's inside you, you have power to confront and even overcome sin, but it's still going to be a battle. But you're still under the presence of sin. And only when you die and go to heaven or when Jesus Christ comes back, you are then free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, and free from the presence of sin. The problem that we have is we expect to have an immediate 100% heaven on earth experience. Like we expect heaven to be now. When no, the journey is still yonder. You're still going on this journey of faith. But there will be a day when where not only, where you will have to worry even about the struggle of sin and the presence of sin because they will be done away with. And that's the day when we enter into the kingdom in heaven. Last but not least, I hear this sometimes. I'm so busy at school or work, I don't have time to serve and volunteer at church. Anyway, that's why we have pastors, elders, and deacons. They'll take care of it, right, Steve? Isn't that true? That's why we have Steve. He used to be the deacon of general affairs. He takes care of everything that we need. David Kwong knows. He used to be the deacon of general affairs. But that's why we have deacons. That's why Pastor Curtis is here. He can take care of everything. Pastor's wives. You know, two-for-one deal. We expect them to, even though they're not the pastor, they can do all the work for us. We have elders, basically pastors who uh, are unpaid. So they're doing it for free, you know? And so they'll do that. Well, this is a very popular idea that has arisen from believing unbiblically that church is a place to go to. Let's go to church, right? Pastor Curtis has talked about this before. Rather than biblically, a spiritual family to be a part of. I am part of the church. So there's a difference in servanthood mentality. When you think that you're going to church like you're going to watch a concert, you don't think that you're there to serve others because it's the professional musicians who are serving you, right? And then the, the difference is the professionals are we who are up here. It's Thomas, myself, you know, right? The deacons, the pastors, the elders. But if you biblically see, if you read from the Bible, you will realize that the church is like a, the body of Christ. It's a, a family analogy. You are part of this church family. If you think you're going to family, then things change. You'll have a more servant attitude because you realize you need to do your part as a brother or sister in Christ. This idea also has grown as a result of a lack of emphasis of membership in a particular church. So because a lot of churches don't have membership any, anymore, you can belong to any church because all churches are part of the body of Christ. But here's the fact. When you date often, you never know what it's like to truly get involved in someone's 
life. It's only those who commit and get married that understand the reality of servanthood. And if we don't become members of a particular church, like CCCTO, we're just continuing to date a whole bunch of churches, our view of servanthood will be very, very shallow because we're never going to commit. The presence of large and mega-sized churches add to this problem, right? If you're part of a large or mega-church, which many of us have been, you know, I don't need to serve. They already have a lot of people, right? I'm just one person out of 5,000 here at this church, so I can just come and and go. And as mentioned before, the aged idea of a priestly and non-priestly class hierarchical separation doesn't help either. But here's the biblical reality The only Christians in the Bible who are not using their gifts to glorify God and edify each other in the church body were missionaries to unchurched areas. Because there was no church. They had to start their own church. They have to win converts and then start their own church. Note these passages from Paul's divinely inspired writings. Romans 12, 4-10. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function... So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Then he gives an encouragement to use all the different gifts that God has given us. And he ends it by saying, in verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Remember, it's not a performance, but it's being part of a family. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-12. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So he's talking about spiritual gifts. Everyone who's a Christian is given a spiritual gift. And again, he encourages, he lists some of these gifts. And then in verse 11, he says, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though it is, all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. This means that all of us Christians, no matter how busy we are, we need to prioritize serving each other in our family with our spiritual gifts in at least one way. And as the old saying goes, if it's important, you will make the time. If it's important, you will make the time. The Bible says this is important. Make the time. The role of the pastors, Elders and deacons are to lead and equip the rest of the church body to serve one another and the world around us. It is not to be the only ones doing these. Now, here's the thing. You may contend, as many people have, but I'm not a social person. I'm not a good speaker. I also don't have any gifts. Furthermore, I occasionally have to work Sunday mornings, so I really can't help. Right? We all encounter people that are like that, and most of the times, they're not like that because they truly are telling the truth, but they just don't want to be committed. Right? Now, some, some of this is true for people. Okay? Well, here is your solution. Here are some tips for those who are more unsocial, ungifted, and Sunday morning apathetic to serve the body of Christ. Remember that you are still part of the church family. Even though you're unsocial, ungifted, Sunday morning challenged, you are still part of the church body. Serve unofficially and without a title. Okay, You don't have to be worship music leader on the bulletin to serve. You can serve by yourself. Pray and think about one way you can encourage a fellow church member spiritually 
and do that for him or her. And by the way, that doesn't require Sunday mornings. And by the way, Sunday mornings isn't the only time that the church meets. Your fellowship group that's related to your age meets at another time. We have Wednesday prayer meetings. Even youth college group. We have adults that come to youth college group because they can't make it on Sunday mornings. That, there's another way you can do it. If you speak Mandarin, you have even more options. And you speak Cantonese, you have even more options than that. You can, there's always something going on that you can go to. Don't tell me that every day and every hour you can't make it because you're too busy for that. You can write your prayers out for people in the church in need and snail mail or email it to them. Join the usher team. Even someone in a wheelchair can smile, say good morning, and pass out a bulletin. Okay? Be part of the cleanup after any church activity, which happens almost every day of the week. You just need to find it on the time schedule. Buy an Enzo Ferrari and have our church logo and website address professionally labeled on the top and sides. Make sure to drive it around Conejo Valley often. Okay, I think that would be really cool. Really cool. What are your spiritual needs? Let others at CCCTO know what they are so that your service can be allowing others to serve you. Okay, so here are six different ways that if you are unsocial, ungifted, and only an occasional Sunday Christian can serve in your church body as long as you make it a priority. If that is true for even this person who can't do that much, how is it true for the rest of us who aren't this person, but yet who's not serving in some way or in some capacity to build up and edify your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, to close, there's so many more things in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. I hope this has whet your appetite as we continue to go through the story and as we continue near the end of the story. Please read your Bibles, whether it's the story Bible or your regular Bibles, whatever the case, grow in Christ and have a great week. Let's pray.